Hey everyone, this is Paul Siegel, and you're listening to Wandering DMs. Wandering DMs comes to you live every Sunday at 1 p.m. Eastern, and you can catch us on twitch.tv slash wanderingdms, or youtube.com slash wanderingdms slash live. And now, on with the show. Hi everyone, welcome to Wandering DMs. I'm Paul. And I'm Dan, and on this episode of Wandering DMs, we're going to be talking about challenge ratings and other ways of measuring monster risk. Are they useful? Are they dependable? Are they just a bunch of boulette droppings? All that and more today on Wandering DMs. <laughs> uh, uh, we already I'm... have interesting chat going on in the live chat yeah, even before yeah. we started the show. Even... Indeed, indeed, love. a lot of a lot of predictions about the uh, spiciness content level of this show. Uh, something actually that you and what? I discussed uh, weeks prior. Uh, we were pretty sure we were headed that direction, and I'll even point out that something happened this just this past weekend that like flipped mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. a big chunk of my opinion on this topic. So uh, <laughs> fascinating. <laughs> Yeah, 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 yeah. It's going to be a spicy one. We I think were, you guys are we, right. we held <laughs> off on this for a while. I mean, this is a major right challenge ratings in fifth edition, and other editions are a major design point. A major design point. They were like the the newest book that just came out from Wizards of the Coast. That's the main thing they were pitching: is we're we're altering a bunch of monsters, but we promise you, we're not going to change the challenge ratings. That's our primary design goal. So it's a major part of fifth edition. But Paul and I have held off on this for a while because we were worried about it being overly controversial. But here we are. <laughs> we're queuing up. I'm buckled in. I'm ready for it. Stock Excellent. challenge Excellent. ratings. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I know. Dad, you have a um, do you have a like a, a high level uh theory or you know uh hypothesis okay. to, to to drop Great. drop for us uh yeah now i i will say that this is in some sense you know balancing games and 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 costing things properly is my primary game design uh interest and i've been working on it for original dnd for 10 20 maybe 30 years depending on the, how you count it so i'm i am a little bit worried today i have too much to say about it I will continue <laughs> to talk about this stuff on my blog regularly at deltasdnd at uh, blogger.com. Um, uh, and, 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 and I've been working in the last couple of months, actually, on, on refining my own metrics for this. So I'll continue to talk about more details elsewhere. But my, my, my top thesis is I'm going to argue yes. Um, you need some way of estimating, right? It's an estimate. Uh, some way of estimating monster risk before you put it in the game for a bunch of reasons. Um, mm. In some way, it's always been there. Even you go back to original D and D, and even there, they're trying. They have you know language trying to increase the number of monsters when you have an increased number of players. So right. you know what is the proper number of monsters? That's always been in the rules. You go back to original D&D, monsters are divided up into different levels, which is the same kind of idea. So we use different language. You might be talking about monster levels or the monster mark system or challenge ratings and language changes. But I feel you need some way of measuring monster risk. And look, the funny thing when you talk challenge ratings is a lot of people, their first thought is, 
perfectly equitably balancing monsters to the players. So it's exactly a 50-50 fight or some dependable percentage of player resources. And uh, to me, that's almost the least interesting use of, of those kinds of metrics. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's kind of interesting. That, and, and I think it was possibly overdone, particularly in the third edition era of claiming that you could exactly balance those things. And um, you can't, there's gonna be variation, but I do think you need some, some general estimate to know whether, the, whether a monster is totally too much for your players or not. I guess, I, I guess what I would ask Dan is um, like, when and why do you need that metric? Uh, you know, the thing that got me on this track, I'll say, is, well, how many monsters should be coming up? Um, original D&D is... Be more is specific, sketch- when, 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 when you say, like, like, are you talking about because I'm running a session tonight? Are you talking about because I'm writing content? Am I, like, what's the context? When are you, you know, looking for Excellent. CRs? Okay, so for me, you know, I'm not, you know, I'm not a huge narrative uh, DM, so I don't feel like I'm designing scenes in advance. I'm not trying to design a scene that a fight's going to go this way with my players. I, t- I personally tend to be more of a, of a sandbox world building type DM. Um, mm-hmm. And so for me, I'm um, establishing locations, uh, a dangerous mountain range, uh, a very safe uh, stretch of farmlands level one of the dungeon versus level 10 of the dungeon. And I want to have an idea, having established that one place is riskier than another, I want to establish some kind of reasonable monster population and numbers that okay. is in the range for that, that, that risk level. So, so you're talking about sort of design time, world building, uh, possibly prior to even knowing who's playing or what characters they're playing or what's going to happen on any given night. And I'd say that's, that's pretty similar for me. Um, you know, and there's, there's an interesting variation here. I, I feel like I, I say this with every topic, but there's an interesting variation for me when we're talking about long-term campaign play versus one shots or convention style play. Um, in the, in the big campaign settings, when I'm, I do something very similar to what you're talking about, where I, well, I like to build a sandbox and I say like, okay, here's the town where they're going to start. And then I kind of radiate out and I start placing dungeons and other stuff going on. And usually in those cases, I'm not thinking about CR. I'm just thinking about what would be cool. But but I do I guess I do have a vague idea of like, well, probably I want the stuff that's really close to the safe haven town to be like goblins and the stuff that's really far mm-hmm. away in the mountains to be like, you know, horrible dragons and stuff in between. Um, but I did like the mentality, and I can't remember where this comes from, but I did like the mentality of possibly this is a West Marches thing, of um of kind of building the content in a way that makes sense. And then leaving it for the players to evaluate risk as they're playing, and 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 allow them the opportunity if they want to get in over their heads and and have them you know potentially learn that oh this area is too dangerous for us we need to run away and go do something else for a while and level up and come back at it later. Um, so I do like that in my games. Uh, possibly CR I would say is more important when you're getting down to like a convention game. Like usually in my convention games I'm making pregen characters. And so, like, I know exactly which characters are going to be there. I know what levels they are, what powers they have, you know, what, what magic items they're carrying. And I want the content to be enjoyable, right? I, I don't want, like, a first-room TPK, and, nor do I want the whole game to be a cakewalk. So I want something that's going to be fun. Well, that's actually a good point. I probably don't think about convention play enough. And, and weirdly, like, a lot of our beloved uh, early D&D adventure modules that we all know 
come out of tournament convention play. And I, I tend to forget that that's actually the origin of a lot of stuff. Um, yeah, a lot so that's of actually a good point. When you get down, right? like you look, you look yeah. at the A series, right? There are the characters, right there, right yeah. there in the module. Yep. And of course, for a tournament like that, you needed to have fixed characters so that the play at different tables was was equitable. Um, so yeah, in those cases, it would be even more important to be able to 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 say that. So I agree that you know uh, players uh, getting in over their heads, discovering what the risk level is, running away parlaying um, needs to be an important part of the game. And, and usually that's like the first critique of, of CRs is that is for someone to say, well, it doesn't really matter how risky it is because the players will figure out how to deal with. But I think that most of us agree in the, in the limit, so to speak, you know, there are stealthy monsters, right? Some are hiding, some are going to ambush your players. I think that most of us agree that it's not it's not the best play to have a monster that just jumps out and insta kills the players on the first round by surprise, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. There's right. There's Probably there's language yeah. in right. There's language in the fifth edition DMG that says um, it's considered bad form to just slaughter a party using a random encounter. So at mm -hmm. at least as as a, as a thought experiment, I think we agree that having a monster just jumps out instantly kills the players is is not good. But, how do you the, know where that threshold side, is? I want I want to just just be clear the context we're not talking about, right? Like the, the thing I think that you and I probably both agree on here is you're not going to be using this on the fly during an individual session, right? It's not like the party is traveling across this mountain range mm -hmm. and you're going, "Well, my party is currently average level 5, so let me go roll on this chart versus that chart." Whereas if they were weaker, I would I would change the monsters I'm going to throw at them. Based on based on them rather than based on their location, I agree with that. That is the so I I would not I personally don't play adjusting the monsters for the the current moment to moment player strength. Uh, there obviously we know there are some people that do that. Uh, to, to to part of my assumption is you know part of my assumptions is that I'm I think about traditional D and D where uh, wandering monsters are happening are an important part of the play. Uh, you're going to be rolling for number, you know, type and number of wandering monsters on the fly, and it will be variable. You're getting experience from monsters, and that's been true all the way from zero edition to fifth edition. The primary way you get experience in fifth edition is still based on monster CR level. Um, and I'm assuming that you are not changing the strength of the monsters on the fly moment to moment. Uh, some people do that. <clears throat> And it's funny because I know that some people, they tend to be the same person, argues for, well, the players can run away and also I as DM can just adjust the strength of the encounter if it's going too easy or too hard. And to me, those seem contradictory of like, well, if you're always going to adjust the monsters, why do the players ever need to run away? So to me, the, the interesting thing is, is assuming that the encounters are fixed um, and, you know, mm -hmm. we were talking to Greg Svensson, right, just last week, played with, Black, you know, Dave Arneson and Blackmore. And his claim is at the time they did not uh, change the monster levels uh, for how many players were present or something. So I think that's a very old school way of doing it. Um, and I think that's the, the interesting hard design problem is, is when you do commit to the bit in advance. Hmm. Hmm. Sorry, Dan, I had a... 
half an eye here on the chat, which is uh, which is uh, uh, spinning by. And I thought there was a very interesting point here about about uh, it being necessary for for new DMs, right? That that CR, uh, you know, maybe you know, here I am just instinctually saying goblins are easy, dragons are hard. Um, you know, I don't know. Maybe maybe a new DM doesn't know that. That's a good point. That's a great point. Moreover, you know, maybe maybe even experienced DMs don't know that. Because, um, <laughs> right? Um, uh, and I have one case in my pocket, and, and at least one person in the chat knows what it is. I've mentioned, I've mentioned it before. Of, uh, you know, there are cases of very experienced, very, very experienced DMs. And we all like to say, well, I just know. I just know what a dangerous monster is. But we get surprised, and we are there. We are mistaken. You and I, Paul, I think we've DM for a long time, and even within the last week, you and I were surprised <laughs> by things we discovered. Yeah. Right? Sure. We never would have. We never would have thought about it if we hadn't run the test uh, to see what happens in standard situations. And, so even experienced DMs may, can get surprised. Yep. And you you might be someone who's just an experienced DM and you're trying to publish material that has new monsters in it. Heck, that you and I do that, Dan. When we do our design dash, we love to toss in new custom monsters. How do you how do you build those monsters in such a way that 100%. they make sense for the content you're putting them in? Hundred yeah. percent. What yeah. level do you put them at? How many of how, what what's the number range? How many wandering monsters should there be? Awesome. All that stuff. Great. Yeah. So I feel like we we agree that there should be something <laughs> to judge the general mm -hmm. danger level of a monster. Uh, what do you want to dig into? Should we should we go into the history? You want to go into the current edition of fifth edition? You want to look at how it's done historically? You want to talk about your method? What do you, I? I uh, they're all good. Okay, so I was just mentioning my example, right, of a very experienced DM getting surprised and and uh, making a mistake um, about um, about a monster. So if you start going through, assuming that my images are in alphabetical order. <laughs> Oh, oh boy! <laughs> and you go through the, <laughs> the zero edition stuff. I have like sure. I brought well, like a suitcase how's, how's full that? of Perfect, right? I brought That's a suitcase exactly full of images. So this is this is the little brown books. This is a little slice here about number of monsters in a dungeon, right? And the first line, and this, I believe this is written by Gary Gygax. It's very cagey, but it says if the level beneath the surface roughly corresponds with the level of the monster then the number of monsters will be based on a single creature modified by type and the number of adventures in the party. So I'm going to point out two things in that is if the level of dungeon matches the level of the monster. Well, what's the level of the monster, right? You need to know that, okay? And of course, us old schoolers know in, in traditional D&D, monsters were split up into either six levels to begin with or then 10 levels. Well, which level do you identify them at? Because apparently that's the key to determining the the number that's appearing. Okay. And the second thing I would highlight here is that if you have a party of one to three players, then you get the basic number, which I guess is usually one. And then if you double the number of players, then you're supposed to double the number of monsters. So even at this earliest stage, the instinct was to scale the, the, the threat level to the, the number of players present. That possibly went away, but at least for zero edition and basic D&D, that was still baked in the rules. So what's a level of a monster mean? Okay, go on to the next one. So that's always been, okay. So here is a slice of the monster level tables, and I've actually taken the page from D&D's uh, first supplement, the Greyhawk supplement by, by Guy Gax and company, came out 
the year after original D&D did. And you can see the first couple levels here, and they've added you know some new monsters, which is why I picked this. Level one, like Paul was saying, you got kobolds, you get goblins, you get orcs, you get skeletons, you get rats, stuff like that. Level two, you got hobgoblins and gnolls and zombies, and there's level three and four and five, and then there's a sixth level on the next page. Um, and for like wandering monsters, uh, you don't always, you know, level three doesn't immediate level dungeon level three doesn't immediately send you to monster level three. There's a matrix that randomizes. You'll probably get monster level three, but it might be two or four or something else. So on this page, our, our, our colleague, Frank Metzer, who is famous for writing the basic expert companion masters immortal supplement in the eighties. And he was actually the, uh, Mr. Mensner was actually the head of D&D and AD&D rule development in the 80s when Gygax was focused on business and movie deals, right? Was asked, Mr. Mensner was asked a couple of years back, what's the biggest mistake you've ever made in your life as DM? And mm -hmm. that mistake is on this page. That mistake is, and Frank had one specific, specific answer and you could point to this page does anybody know what the mistake is on this page it's the single biggest mistake <laughs> that the head of dnd &D in the 80s ever made can, you can take the professor out of the lecture hall but you can't are we waiting here for an answer from our from our from our chat are you challenging viewers me? yeah <laughs> viewers I'm, I'm challenging everyone of course my challenge rating is very high paul I would put it yeah, at approximately yeah. 10. So yes, well, I'm willing think, to challenge I, all I takers. I know the answer to this. What is, what is the answer? Okay, yeah. what, what is the I major the mistake right. on that page? And of course, our poor podcast viewer or listeners don't have no idea what we're talking about here. But this is uh, monster level tables out of, uh, out of the first supplement, <laughs> as you mentioned. Uh, and I think the problem is the carrying crawlers listed as, as uh, level two. Is that, is that not it? Yeah. You're right. And of course, uh, a bunch of our viewers knew that. And uh, John and Perkins and Eric and David and William and Ash, right? And we, we all know this because we've talked about this before. So you've got the carrion crawler uh, that's been tacked on at the end of level two there. And of course, carrion crawler uh, is a creature that has eight tentacles, gets eight attacks per round, does no damage, does zero mm -hmm. damage, but, but is par paralyzing and can immediately take a character out of the fight. Um, right. And so that was exactly Frank's biggest mistake we is, get is relying too, on that. Unless uh, we get too deep into the weeds here of the history of mm -hmm. uh, attempts at this, Dan. Um, I, will, I mean, I think the, the lesson, the obvious lesson here is like, I think there was a time in the early editions where you would just simply look at hit dice and say hit dice is about the, car, the monster level. And that often just doesn't take into account all the other things like the fact that the cockatrice has or the cockatrice the uh, carrying crawler yep. has eight paralyzing attacks which is just yep. ludicrous right it just you just wipe out a party and first round just like that boom surprise yep. eight attacks everyone's paralyzed the end <laughs> you put it so well paul you put it so well you know in the little brown books in the original little brown books arguably hit dice does a pretty good job because the special abilities generally scale with the hit dice but once you move to the supplements and they start making more of these exotic weirdo monsters like rust monsters and carrying crawlers and things like that that just use the hit dice breaks exactly like this and just go to the next image because i just kind of want to nail my my point home before we go 
Oh, uh, not that one. So there should be this one right here. So this is, uh, and that uh, discussion I was mentioning was happening on Facebook. Someone asked, okay, DMs, what's the biggest mistake you ever made trying to homebrew something? And then Mr. Menser jumped in and responded under underestimating that eight carrion crawler <laughs> tentacles against a mid-level party are basically a TPK waiting to happen. And then, of course, <laughs> I sliced out the, uh, the, the, the text description from the later first edition monster manual for carrying crawler and i highlighted the part at the bottom where they've tagged on uh as there are so many tentacles with which to hit and thus multiple chances of being paralyzed these monsters are greatly feared yeah particularly when they're showing up at the second level of your dungeon <laughs> and so, the first edition so uh dm's guide they were adjusted up to sixth level it's the single biggest yeah. jump in monster level as carrying crawls did go from two up to six as that was recognized later so, so here's here's my here's my big ticket question for you, Dan. Again, trying to trying to short circuit some of this because I'm worried that this show is going to be five hours long if we go too deep into this. Um, I agree. <laughs> uh, right. So you you look at something like BX and you start to see well they start putting asterisks on there, right? Like it's hit dice plus this many asterisks and that you know increases the challenge or whatever. And then you get into later editions where we start getting complex algorithms for calculating the CR of a monster based on many factors. And uh, my question ultimately is sort of, um, is it possible? Is it possible to actually mathematically prove the difficulty level of a monster based on all these things where so many monsters ultimately just break the rules and do their own thing anyway? Uh, I mean, you and I were talking recently about Mind Flayers and how Mind Flayers essentially break all the standard rules of D&D and simply they just like say, no, all those rules that you're used to about how to fight monsters out the window. I, I do my own thing. Um, is I, it really possible yeah. to numerically evaluate that? Not, not by a menu point-based system uh, is my thesis. One of, one of my biggest number one theses on my blog, and in fact, I have a link on the YouTube description to the show right now that goes to that article of mine, one of my biggest theses is uh, point by uh, uh, ability by ability, point by systems are always broken. Attempting to have yep. an a la carte menu of abilities and adding points always broken. You've got to measure the monster holistically to see what its effect is in the game. I want to send here, here's a, here's a, this is a, a little, uh, from, from the past, a little bit, for, but I marked this in the chat as I saw it scroll by, but here's a comment from, uh, uh, oh, hopefully did it show up. There we go. Uh, there, from David Heron that says, I think a big issue is the system of rigid numerical CR suggests fidelity of control that the game can't deliver. What do you think of that? Dan? It's a fairly good point. It's a fairly good point by David. Is that is that unfortunately by giving you know one number, and this is this is true for science and metrics and measurements is. Um, you know, we, we want to be brief. We want to deliver people one number because for some people that's about as much, you know, time that they have to focus on it. But yeah, it, it's an estimate and it's really a range. And uh, that's a really good point by delivering that one single number can obscure all the variables that are going into it and all the variation that could happen at the table. It's a really good point. I don't know how, I don't know how else to emphasize that these are always estimates. Uh, yeah. There's a lot of variation. You know, maybe you should add text, right? <clears throat> maybe you should add text to the monster of, say, in this particular situation, the monster is more dangerous. And if if the characters have this kind of resource, it's going to be much easier to overcome. There's a little tiny sidebar 
in the fifth edition DMG that tries to get at that and points out like Rakshas's, for example, you know, take, you know, they're basically immune to any spells that almost any players have. On the other hand, in traditional D&D, you show up with one blessed crossbow bolt and they're gone. Um, so maybe you right. ought to have some strategic style, like Keith Amon style text about when they're worse and when they're better. Keith Alvin came up in the in the chat earlier too. There was a lot of discussion about like, does that change the challenge rating when suddenly the DM skill goes up? Right now, I've read this book and now I know how to play my monsters harder. Does, does that mean all their CR should go up? What's, or maybe what's they should have been lower experience? Didn't read the book. What What's your experience been with that, Paul? Oh, absolutely. I mean, frankly, I mean, I don't know if it should change the CR or if I'm just if I'm just reaching the uh, if I my DMing is just reaching the level that the CR was implying it should be. But I had a game with uh, with a couple players uh, playing some fifth edition with uh, some goblins. Then I thought, oh, well, not only had I read Keith's book and, and was like, this is how I'm going to play goblins, but also I had populated a map by uh, a, a Dyson Logos map that was really nice that, that looked like it would be conducive to their style of attacks, which is generally a kind of fire and, and retreat tactic. Mm -hmm. um, and it just decimated my players, just, just TPK'd them like immediately. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes, it was much more challenging than your sort of bog standard six goblins in a square room. And I mean, how are you going to control that, right? Uh, unless you unless you completely put things on rails and the rules, some DMs are going to be more proficient strategically, and some DMs will be gentler or softer or not as proficient. And obviously, there's going to be at least that level of variation at the table. You know, a separate thing that you know that's occurred to me is. Because, uh, you know, and so, of course, my, my personal answer to attempting to measure these things is to always write a computer simulation of the game and actually run that and see what the, what the results are after, as I say on the Book of War, Wargaming show, billions of simulations <laughs> in a really large data set, right? And happy to crunch that. And I've done that for original D&D. I've done that for uh, the Star Frontiers uh, spaceship fighting game Nighthawks. I've done that for the game of life that my, my partner Isabel made an art project out of. Um, I've done that for uh, the Book of War war game that I do. Um, and I, would, I just I, want to jump in here. You know, <laughs> I want to jump in here and point out that like, what you're suggesting is no small feat. Right, the rules of D and D oh, yeah. are vast, and the situational yeah. changes, and that's the thing that always bothered yeah. me about about this idea of simulating it is is my thought that yeah. like you just can't simulate all the variables; it's just not possible, right? You can't right. Uh, account for the fact that I have this particular map where the goblins have advantage of being up on this ledge and can fire down at the players, yeah. right? Um, and you know, simulating the game of life, I'm sure, is much easier than simulating Dungeons and Dragons in its entirety. Especially as we move oh, yes. across editions, and more complexity gets added, more rules, more you know variables uh, get tossed into it, and just becomes an impossibility. Is my theory? Is it worth I simulating, mean, you know, Dan? When when the rules are I think so it's complex, you can't possibly. <laughs> yeah, I think it's worth it to get a base level estimate. And you're right, of course, the game of life took me, you know, an afternoon, it took me four hours. Simulating original D&D has taken me eight years and counting. Um, so, <laughs> so, so my point is like, up until yeah. recently, actually, I just had just fighter melee attacks being simulated. And I think that most of us generally agree how to, you know, how a hero fighting an ogre fight is going to work in traditional D&D. &D. There's not too much 
debate about that. But what I did in the last couple of months um, was to add spells, was to add basic wizard attack spells, magic missile and fireball and lightning bolt and disintegrate and all that kind of stuff. And that threw, as, as Paul's saying, threw an enormous number of variables into the picture, made me realize how many judgments and adjudications and rulings and interpretations are stacked up one on top of the other uh, to a Babel-like yep. tower uh, to get to I this mean, point. Here's, here's, here's my anecdote of, uh, of uh, my recent experience has kind of changed some of my opinions on some of this stuff is, uh, as, as our viewers yes. probably know, I am working on a horror RPG that will be coming to Kickstarter hopefully in the near future called Fearful Ends. And I have some some folks playtesting it, some folks in the chat actually uh, playtesting it for me. Thank you so much, playtesters. Um, and some of the feedback was, it's, it's too deadly. It's just way too deadly. Um, and I had a vague sense in the back of my head from running my own playtest. It's, it's a bit too deadly. And so I said, I guess I'll take a page out of Dan's book here and I'll write a program and emulate combat and see how deadly it really is. And the fascinating thing to me was not proving or disproving that it was too deadly. Uh, it was finding out why. And discovering that like one of the biggest impacts was not chance to hit or how much damage or how many hit points people had, but was the initiative system. And I was like, really? The initiative system is what's throwing a monkey wrench in this thing? I had no idea. Um, you know, and then I just started to imagine like there's all these other factors that I haven't even simulated yet. I haven't put them in the program yet. And I've already found the smoking gun of, oh, geez, the initiative system has to change. Give me more detail about the effect of the initiative system. Yeah. What was, what was yeah. the couple well, of options and what it, were the effects? Because it, because it scared me that it was going to affect my D&D games as well. Now, now, folks who have listened to our show before know that Dan and I have kind of a similar opinion on initiative systems. Uh, I've, I've played them all. Um, I am certainly used to the style of game, which I think is fairly common these days amongst modern D&D players, where uh, every player rolls a die, the DM rolls a at least one die maybe groups the, the monsters into two or three groups and rolls dice for them. That generates an order. You write down the order and then you call out the order, blah, 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 blah. And, and frankly, that's too complicated for me. Like that, like how much game time did I just suck out of, out of our session just to do that? I hate it. So my preference is a very simple, just go around the table method, sort of an old style, uh, maybe a roll group initiative. If there's, question about which side has surprise and you just go around the table round and round and round and uh what i found was uh by going around the table that uh two groups of opponents who had equal stats and should be a 50 50 split as to which side won was actually 75 25 split based on who went first if you went first 75 percent likely you were going to win the fight wow. and i was like oh no that's uh, I don't really don't want my combats to boil down to who won initiative. That sucks. Um, yeah, right. And I played with That's it a bit. Hit. And frankly, and I was continued to be surprised by what actually impacted that. I started to think, well, if I shuffle all the and all the all the combatants up, like then I get my nice 50 50 distribution, but I'm mm -hmm. certainly not going to roll individual initiative for every goblin in the fight. Ugh. So then I started playing with, well, what if I group all the bad guys and then distribute the players on, on either before or after? And surprisingly, still got the 50-50 split. And then eventually got to my current mechanic, which I kind of like, and I'm curious. I haven't really playtested it in the wild yet, so I'm hope, hoping to do that very soon, of, of simply having a first uh, a sort of a surprise round, a first round of combat where I go around the table, let all the players go first if they can succeed at a specific kind of die roll. 
So just everybody roll this check. If you succeed, you get an initial attack. Then the bad guys are going to go, and then we're going to go around the table. Yeah, I think and that's I a think reasonable. Give me my fifty-fifty split for for equal, you know, equal uh, equally yeah. statted combatants. And John uh, Miller, who's who's listened to us for a while, is making some good points about. He he suggested for for your purpose, Paul, a fearful ends, possibly simultaneous resolution. I think Paul and I tend to shy away from that because, it, particularly as the number of players and monsters gets bigger. And I've run games as large as 14, 15 people. I start not being able to track what the resolutions were that I need to apply after everybody goes. And then for my game, for my game, I'm going to stop you here, Dan. <laughs> the big reason I like for doing the weird thing I just suggested of having everybody make a check is that it still go around the yeah. table. And that's really what I want because there's something about the physicality of hearing the person next to you go and knowing your turn is coming up that makes everything speedier. It's just the the, the order of play is so painfully obvious that you don't waste any time of somebody going, mm -hmm. oh, it's my turn? I didn't realize. Of course you realize. The person to your right just went. I totally agree. And uh, the other thing is if uh, viewers follow the link that uh, William put in chat a while back to Paul's, Paul's blog <clears throat> discussing his playtesting, You've got a point in there about um, uh, players possibly getting up and changing seats in order to change their initiative order, which we have played with in the past and we love. Do, you know, do we require yeah. it? No, but we've had players get up, run around the table in order to get the right initiative order. And that was that was a lovely yeah. little, bit, little bit of frenzy it's, physically in the space I'm, for that. I've heard some people react to that with a sort of like, oh, that's the players are gaming the system. And, and, and my reaction is if your players are so invested in the game, they're going to game the system for some tiny statistical <laughs> advantage by getting up and picking up all their stuff and moving around the table. You're doing great. That is a great game. <laughs> <laughs> I personally agree. I respect if someone doesn't, but I personally agree with that. And it gets energy around the table and stuff like that. And, you know, um, John made a point about uh, in my book of war game saying that uh, frequently the person, the side that can get the first attack off, uh, has a big advantage because it gets lot triggers morale losses, morale checks, stuff like that. I agree. That was a design purpose for Book of War. I wanted the two sides to be aggressive and not ever have like a stalemate because there wasn't a reason to do that. So um, at least for my game, again, you don't know exactly who's going to um, uh, get that attack off first. Uh, you can't measure uh, how far away you are. So there's always uncertainty when you call for a charge in that game. But that is absolutely a large part of, of my war game design uh, goal, actually, was to have action happening fast because of that. Uh, but it's not determined based on one die when the game starts. I don't want to. Uh, I don't want to go too far down the rabbit hole of initiative, but I, I feel like I have to respond to this this uh, message here from Joshua. So I'm going to stick it up uh, uh, on on screen real quick. Uh, Joshua says. Uh, seems like you could get the uh, same effect. Oh, it just scrolled out from my screen. Uh, yeah, by choosing randomly where to start and going around the table from there. Uh, yes, that would work too, right? You could just randomly roll for where to start on the table and then just start circling around the table. The only reason I went the other direction, and this you'll, the, this is like the, the 5e argument against group initiative, is that um, having everybody make a check allows for players to make characters who are going to be good at it. Right, 
they can specialize their characters, say, I want to play the type of character who's always like on top of things and is always going to get to go first in combat. And I know there's like a lot of stuff in fifth edition where there's abilities or feats or whatever, what not feats, they don't call that anymore, but there's abilities that exist that affect initiative. And the counter argument I always hear to using go around the table in fifth edition is, oh, but it ruins this ability of my character. Mm -hmm. So there you go. That's my, like, off my initiative soapbox. Let's continue to talk about CR, Dan. <laughs> Reasonable points, right? Reasonable points all around. Yeah, yep. yeah, yeah. So anyway, the point of the initiative discussion was when we, when Paul or I are, you know, uh, simulate the, the game and honestly say we're not entirely sure, even as longtime DMs, we get surprised. And we have, we get these, these really, you know, interesting observations, it, you know, do I personally do it too much? Yes, probably so. Yes, I probably become obsessed with my simulator and all the little interesting discoveries and moments and scenes that pop out to me that I wouldn't have thought about before. Um, uh, I, I hope other people don't spend as much time as I do. Um, you know, and I, of course, the, the results that I have, I make you know public for free. They're on my OED Games website. I have a link in the description to my uh, monster database that includes what I call equivalent hit dice levels. Uh, at the end of all of our shows, you always hear me mention that we're on GitHub and I have the source code there for my you know, original D&D simulator that's available for anybody to look at. Um, and I, I, I hope other people don't go to this level because it's, it's, I, I might be a little bit of obsessed by it. But we get, so, we, get, we get surprised and we have these really interesting observations um, that come out if, if that we wouldn't have uh, known about if we had just uh, followed the mirage that we're longtime DMs and we're going to know. Because turns out that's not the case. We don't know. I don't know. Paul doesn't know all the time. Gary Gygax didn't and Frank Menser didn't. And they were the guys that basically made the game in the first place. So if those kinds of DMs can't uh, just see to the pants guess the, the proper monster level, uh, you've got to have some other some other mechanism for doing it. So, <laughs> I mean, where does this leave us, Dan? Are we see, are we like do we need to like get in touch with someone at Wizards and say, hey, you need to write uh, code to emulate <laughs> your game? Okay, short story, yes. <laughs> <laughs> the short story is, I, I, I guess I was seeing a review, right, of, uh, I believe it's Monsters of the Multiverse, again, Wizards' newest book, and it, one of the top things they're talking about is we're trying to get the challenge ratings right, we're trying to get the challenge ratings right, and at least the review said, well, challenge ratings are really more of an art than a science, and I immediately kind of, you know, gritted my teeth when I read that because there, there's no reason why you can't make it more scientific. Uh, now... Science is hard. Okay, it's been said before. Doing science is hard. Scientific measurements are, always have error bars on them, right? We can refine yeah. the error bars through larger samples and statistics. Um, but to my to my thinking, there's no reason. And I, I look, it, it is hard. I've said on my blog before that for me, uh, you know, making a game making the object, identifying the objects and the abilities and the characters is only about 20% of the work. And for me, the other 80% of the work is properly pricing stuff through simulation. That's, it's, it's a big, big, hard chunk of work. Um, you know, it makes me slower about designing stuff, 
But when people make up random numbers and don't check them and just throw them into the world and let other people deal with how they're broken, that always sets me on edge. I think that wizards could do a better job if they if they did uh, um, decide to spend the effort on it. I think it could be done better. I mean, it's unfortunately, as we know, uh, sort of the, the the digital bridge for D and D has always been difficult for wizards, right? Like, look back at the third edition books with the CD in the back, and it had a character builder yeah. that was not fantastic. Now that said, they're yeah. getting better, and I feel like they're getting better by offloading the work to others. Um, that that CD yeah. now in fifth edition yeah, yeah. is now D and D Beyond, right? And 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 yeah. frankly, yeah, that's a pretty if. If you were going to tell me I'm going to play a fifth edition game physically at the table, but everyone's going to have tablets with D&D Beyond running instead of, you know, uh, paper character sheets, I'd say, yeah, you're probably going to have a better game, frankly. I think that's that's yeah. great because they, they've put a certain amount of automation into the system. And that's uh, that's that's this is my way of bridging into uh, I'm going to put and see if I can put this up on screen. Hopefully this will work. Uh, that's a little small on my screen. Hopefully folks can see it. But it's a screen cap of D&D Beyond's uh, Encounter Builder. So D&D Beyond has a feature in it where there's an Encounter Builder. You can say, I have this many characters of this sort, and then I'm going to have this many monsters of this type, and it's going to give you like a red, yellow, green you know, visualizer of how difficult it is, uh, which is made with the best intentions. <laughs> I will say it's okay. Ah, I, I really wanted this to work for me. I try. I spent a bunch of time playing with this, and this is why. Prior to you and I, prior to me diving into okay. simulations, why I had a negative view of CR because I really wanted this to work, and it didn't. And the reason it didn't is because I believe that D and D Beyond has essentially simply implemented the system for CR as is written in the book, and that system yeah. for CR is ultimately built on not the scientific method that you're suggesting, right? It's whatever, okay. you know, this okay. art form of them building CR. So unfortunately, it's got all the problems of if you just did it by hand yourself using just the DMG okay. and the monster manual. Okay. okay. Now they have that. I feel like the tools are at your fingertips. Here it is, right? You've got, uh, you've got a, a system, you've got some code that had, does some level of automation. Just, mm, just, just run the simulations. <laughs> just do it. Just run a bunch of simulations and reset all your CRs. And that's we, we as we know, they're not going to do that, right? They're gonna. Uh, yeah. they, they, they've in fact intentional. They've stated that it's important to them that CRs remain constant for their character, right. for their monsters. Yes, good point. That's a design great, goal. Great point. I'm like, oh point. no, oh, that's unfortunate because your CRs need fixing. Yeah. Now that's you know that's too bad and it's frustrating. Uh, have I you know have I dug into the fifth edition uh, encounter building system and checked the math? A lot of people are disappointed by the results. I know that. Uh, you know, again, I I would not me I would not use monster levels or challenge ratings to design one encounter. I would use it to determine a range and a location um, for yeah. creatures. Um, so I'm not surprised that that kind of um, failed. Oh, well, but they're, they're again, using it there for are things, things like, yeah. I, or at least I was using it for things like, I know I have this many players of this average character level. How mm. many goblins should I throw at them? Right? Like, what is a yeah. challenging number of goblins and what is a TPK level of goblins? Well, there you go. I mean, I feel like that's what you're trying to get at. Yeah. That's what you're yeah. trying to get at. Again, it's always an estimate and there's a variation with many variables. Um, yep. 
you know, one thing that I that I learned in my simulation, particularly with traditional D&D, is for particularly like top level monsters, monsters that are at the top of the ecosystem, like an iron golem or a beholder or a rakshasa or a mind flare or something like that, is a tiny little difference in DM interpretation of what the ability is makes an enormous difference, makes an enormous difference. And uh, Paul and I and some of us on Discord have been talking about that recently. And for example, like in, in my simulator, the thing that turns out at the top of the end are, uh, are iron golems. And, you know, for that, the book says, um, you know, traditional D&D says uh, golems are, they're immune to magic. Okay. So does that mean spells? Does that mean just spells from a, from a wizard? Do you include wands and other, like a wand of fireballs? Does that count? Um, do, does, does dragon breath count as magic? Uh, and then the right. thing that really turned into enormous, okay, an, an enormous argument in which on one side <laughs> was just one person, namely me, was can you conjure <laughs> an elemental, can you conjure an elemental and have that go fight the iron golem successfully? And my <laughs> expectation was no, and everybody else in the entire world apparently thinks obviously yes. Um, so, okay, so if it, hypothetically, if players had come to my table and conjured an elemental, a ruling would have surprised them greatly. And these are issues that I wouldn't even think to discuss if I hadn't run the test and realized that these things make a big difference. Um, so there are some places in my game that I'm trying to trying to uh, iron out and, and become a better DM uh, mm. once I realize that these tiny little interpretive issues make an enormous difference that I wouldn't have thought of before. Yeah. And now, now that said, I don't think either of us are arguing that you shouldn't allow situational interpretations to upset the apple cart. Oh, yeah. Right? Like that's, oh, yeah. I mean, that's the fun of D&D for us. And, that, and certainly, I think, you, regardless of how accurate or inaccurate your CR level is, you should allow for a, a group of bumbling adventures to accidentally drop much too deep down down the well in uh, in Rappanathic, stumble into yes. the room of a high priest full of his minions, cast a random charm person spell on him, have him roll a natural one, and just <laughs> circumvent all of the horrible monsters there and walk away with all the treasure. Right? Like that's that should be possible. I think. I, I'm, I, I'm, that, that's happened. Uh, you know, Paul, that's actually happened to me, as a matter of fact. <laughs> really? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, Maybe I, just yeah, I, you know what? The very game of rap and that Dan ran for me a while ago, uh, which totally happened. 100% happened. Uh, and, and it was, and you know and what? Frankly, it one of my favorite things about that story is how much you were sweating bullets realizing that we were in so far over our heads and thinking, oh, this yeah. game is going to end miserably. They're going to be completely so doomed. <laughs> and, you know, and when the dice come up, either one or 20, you should as you should dig into that. You know what? Yeah, Even yeah. if the rules say that a natural 20 isn't anything special on a skill check, I, I recommend that you I recommend that you break that rule and you make it something special. <laughs> right? Just you know, without, just break the, at that point, break the rules because something great just happened for your players. So why not? Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear, oh dear. So you know, let me let me let me point out. So among the reasons that I think you need, again, some way of of at least estimating these things, are what's the experience award, right? The the mm. even the core mm -hmm. way still today in fifth edition is the core ways. All your experience comes from the monsters that you've beaten. Well, how much is an appropriate experience award? 
right? Something's got to be too much and something's got to be too little. And, and I think most of us assume that that's based on the risk level of the monster. So I'm, you've I'm at least got to think that you're going to estimate things for that reason. I'm curious if that is the standard way. I would love to see statistics on D and D games, yeah. which of course don't exist. Who's who's gathering statistics? But but statistics on fifth edition D and D campaigns of how many of them are using that method of XP versus how many are just using the milestone system, because I suspect that the milestone yeah. system is catching on, which is ultimately, uh, for anyone who doesn't realize, is just ultimate fiat of just nope. You play this many sessions, you go up a level. The end. We're not going to worry about it. I don't disagree, right? And that was, that was the next thing I was going to yeah. say. So when I say standard, I mean default by the book core rule. Uh, it, it's big, and, and, and it's easy to forget, frankly, uh, because maybe that's transitioning. I bet you're right. Many, many people uh, at the table have abandoned that. I bet in a future revision or edition, I will not be surprised if, um, if, if that's made the default, frankly. But at least in the in the current fifth edition books, the core default way in the monster manual is all your experience comes from beating monsters. And the other things are variants, and I wouldn't be surprised, but but most people use those variants now. Hmm. Yeah. But so again, if you're if you're running traditional DD, zero to fifth edition, you're you're getting a large part of your experience from the monsters. That needs to be set. You need to know what level you're placing your monsters at. You need to know what a reasonable range that they're going to show up at uh, is, and I have another. If you grab my the uh, the blue graph, Paul, like here's my other example of a place where um, looking at that was very helpful. So we were talking about this on our episode about sweep attacks last year, and that's the rule in traditional D and D where a fighter of eighth level gets eight attacks every round against one hit die types, like goblins or orcs. Um, and it's, and it's a little bit questionable in the LBBs, in original D&D, whether that rule was intended or not. It is not explicitly given to player characters in those rules. It's in Chainmail. It's in first edition. Was that, was that intended at all? And so uh, this image that we saw in that prior episode, the, the top chart is looking at uh, all the, the wilderness monsters and adding up average, as I call them, equivalent hit dice, which is my analog to challenge ratings, um, uh, without sweep attacks, and seeing there's these two separate spikes that pop up. Statisticians will look at a graph like that and know immediately something's broken. You are not measuring one population. You're measuring two different populations that you've accidentally glommed together, one of which has an average hit dice of like 50 or less, and one of which has an average hit dice of around 500. Um, and then the second graph is what happens if you do turn on sweep attacks as your default rule. And then all of a sudden the two spikes go away and you have one kind of sort of normal curve. And for me, just comparing those two graphs was instantaneous. Yes, of course, the, uh, the many uh, monsters that show up for goblins and orcs in original first edition D&D have to assume sweep attacks. And so for me, that, that was that, that instantly solve the dilemma for me about whether sweep attacks are part of original D&D or clearly they have to be just measuring those two uh, distributions of uh, challenge ratings, basically. You know, here's, here's an that, interesting oh, side note on that, Dan. Um, did, did, did you ever play the uh, old SSI gold box video games like uh, Pool of Radiance and 
curse the Azure bonds. I did games. not. And you know, a, a couple of minutes ago in the chat, John Miller said, uh, you know, going forward, there's a possibility of more and more digital tools being produced by, you know, for D and D. And that's, that was the thing that popped into my head, Paul. I wish that I had the code base to those gold box yeah. games and I could just use that as so, a platform for my simulations. Well, I did not play them actually. The, the reason I bring it up is I played them a, a ton. And what I remember of them, because here's a game that's, that is programmed to emulate uh, or simulate uh, first edition D and D rules. Um, what I remember from, especially from playing Pool of Radiance, that there are some encounters in that where they just threw dozens of monsters at you. Like, sure enough, you walk into this room and there's just, you know, 30 or 40 orcs just swarming your party. And frankly, I learned from playing that game that the best the best tool I had at my, whatever they were, third level party, or I can't even remember at that point, second level party, they were, they were low. The best tool uh, was the sweep attack. That that was that is how I survived that game was having push those fighters forward, get them surrounded by as many monsters as I could, and sweep, sweep, sweep. Yeah, yeah, exactly. There, there's a common, you know, there's a long time phrase of uh, uh, fighters are linear and wizards are quadratic. Well, when when fighters get sweep attacks, they are also quadratic. That's it interesting. Makes a big difference. Yeah, yeah, it, it makes it, a huge. Yeah, difference. I'm pretty sure actually it had to be had to be third level or lower because I think I, I as I recall, my magic users might have a couple of sleep spells, and that helped. But that was not mm -hmm. yep. nearly as powerful as getting the fighters with sweep out there in the front. Yeah, makes a huge difference. Makes a huge difference. And I feel like you know, knowing that in advance, you know, what what, what counts as like a really bad encounter for a DM allows you to foreshadow and go, you've heard this, and you know, tell the the players in advance what you know what kinds of what kinds of threat levels they're about to find, so they can make reasonable, informed choices about what they're confronting. Well, Dan, we're down to about five minutes left. Do you have any any final thoughts on CR? Uh, people, uh, viewers will continue to see probably years and years of more thoughts on my blog <laughs> about <laughs> about simulating and measuring, you know, mon monster levels as we used to call them. I, I think you've you've no edition of D and D has been able to avoid some kind of estimate, some kind of rough estimate for monster threat level. As Paul said, uh, you know, just looking at the hit dice doesn't cut it as soon as you start to have things like, you know, spiders with poison or carrying crawlers in the game. So yeah, I think you need to have something like that for awarding XP, for what level of the dungeon do they belong at, for what's what kind of die are you rolling, for how many show up for wandering monsters. Um, you know, and then having an estimate for generally whether the, the upcoming encounter is really super bad or not. Um, I think you gotta have something like that. It's always an estimate. And I think that it's, I personally think that that is the hardest part of game design is trying to get that right. A lot of variables, a lot of interpretations. Um, and I think wizards could do better. I think wizards yeah. could do better. And yeah, I think, that's... I think some of us have the tools that could bring to the table if they wanted to. I think uh, I would I would um, I guess I, I would summarize my recent change of opinion to be that uh, uh, there was prior prior to my own experience simulating some code that uh, that I had had an opinion that simply there were just so many variables it was such a complex problem that it just wasn't worth it and their best your best opportunity was just to turn it into an art form just sort of do your best and and learn through through playing and and try and try and try again and uh, just get a feel for it. Um, but these days I would say, 
that it's worth the effort, but incredibly hard. Calculating, coming up with a mathematical model for challenge rating is incredibly difficult, but worth the effort, even if uh, you get it not very right, I think. Like, even if, mm -hmm. because yeah. you're not, frankly, I'm going to say that. I'm going to just go out on a limb and say, you're not going to get it 100% right. You're going to get in, in a ballpark, maybe, if you're lucky. Mm -hmm. But even that little incremental change, even that little bit of data is going to improve your game. And so it's worth the effort. Super well put. I, I do agree with that. Yeah. There you go. Uh, viewers, if you have any thoughts on CR, what has worked, what hasn't worked, uh, you think that we're full of crap and it's uh, and you should just uh, wing it or uh, toss it out the window, or you know of a game that does it in an interesting, different way uh, than what we did, or you have opinions on sweep attack or initiative order, uh, drop us a comment in the in the video <laughs> chat here. Um, you know, let us know your thoughts, and and uh, I'm sure that it will at least feed the fire of Dan's years of future blogging on this topic, uh, if not uh, <laughs> more more in the show for us to discuss. <laughs> yeah, we uh, great, great comments uh, on the show today. Uh, I'm going to have to go back and read all of them. Uh, feel free to keep the uh, the chat uh, going in the YouTube comments uh, after the show's over. Of course, remember that you can like, follow, and subscribe to us on YouTube and Twitch and Twitter and Facebook and GitHub. If you're a coder, check out our you know our simulator code that we've posted publicly on GitHub. I think is very interesting, <coughs> and also TikTok. And we do have the handle Wandering DMs on all of those sites. So look for this there for more updates about shows and uh, updates on code repositories. <laughs> <laughs> uh, if, if you prefer to listen to these shows uh, as audio-only podcasts, uh, you can get those files. They are available on our website at wanderingdms.com and through various uh, uh, third-party carriers like iTunes and Stitcher and Google Podcasts and sites like that. If you're listening to this podcast right now on one of those sites, please take a moment to rate and review us there. That helps other users of that site find us and we really appreciate it. We really do. And of course, we really appreciate our patrons who support the Wandering DMs show. If you would like to join them, please visit patreon.com slash wandering DMs. You'll see our different tiers with discounts on merch, access to a private Discord server, behind the scenes stuff, and the after party chat that we hold every Sunday. We'll be there about 10 minutes on our Discord server to continue the video chat about this uh, very interesting, very spicy uh, topic that we, we will look forward to continuing. Um, uh, Paul, you're going to be there at the after chat today. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. If you uh, think that the YouTube, that the sorry, the uh, chat uh, of this this stream was wrong at the beginning in predicting that this was going to be a spicy topic, you should come on over to the Discord and and engage there <laughs> because I am sure that the spice level is going to go up and we're going to get to three or maybe five <laughs> chili peppers worth of spice <laughs> over there in the Discord. <laughs> so uh, it's totally worth it. Uh, it's, you know, donate a dollar to our Patreon and you'll get access to those after after show chats. And it's really one of the most, um, you know, we have a lot of a lot of special things that we give to our patrons, all kinds of stuff. Sometimes uh, we release PDFs to them for free and stuff like that. But yeah. I really do think that the after the after show chat is, is kind of the glowing gem of, of uh, patron benefits. So so come on, join us. We all enjoy it a lot. Uh, of course, Paul is uh, back. Should be back tomorrow with uh, TDR Monday night, right? Yep. 
Very good. And uh, I will be back uh, late, late Thursday night for more uh, Dan Plays Games games in the Elder Times. I'm currently playing through uh, 1993 D&D Stronghold. Had a really great first session. Got clobbered last Thursday. Got horrendously attacked by a giant army of skeletons and blast spores just coming out of the hills like crazy. Uh, so I'm going to try to fight my way back from that on Thursday. And then uh, one week from today, uh, which will be February 27th, we should have on Mr. Luke Gygax to talk about this year's GaryCon happening in about a month and how, you know, all of us are dealing with reopening convention season for the for the first time, hopefully, in, in, in a couple of years. So really interested in hearing uh, Luke Gygax's thoughts on that. Um, so that's next Sunday at 1 p.m. Eastern time, like we are on, uh, as always. So please join us then for another thought-provoking discussion. We'll see you then.